Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Glad to have all of you worshiping here today. Also, we want to welcome those worshiping with us online. We're always glad to have you as well. Now, I asked in the last service uh, how many people, this was their last Sunday, they're going to be heading back north again. How many people in here are going to be heading home this week? What I'd like to suggest is that you move here and just visit there. Really, because, and you know what's happened? Some people who used to do that have just given up and moved here. They've just said, okay, we're just going to go, and here they are. And so they live here now. And did, did we mention we don't have a state income tax? Could come in handy. I mean, if you're from a state that they really sock it to you on the state income tax, this is your place. You could live here most of the year and go back there when it's pleasant. They told me when they were leaving, they said, we hope the snow has gone away. I do, too. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Even California. California has snow. Who would have thunk it, right? But they do right now. Not just in rain. Southern California, it doesn't rain, much less snow, but they've got it. So there. So beware. Maybe we'll get snow. I have seen flurries in the panhandle before. They didn't do much, but I saw them. They were just out there floating around. So anyway, I'm glad to see. Now, we did this series recently. We just wrapped it up last week, and it was about being a mess. How many of you are ready just to admit again you're a mess? I tell you, people really got into that series. Did you notice? They said, I'm a mess, you're a mess, we're all a mess. That's what, and they just went around laughing at each other and pointing, saying, you're a mess. And they had a blast with it. So anyway, if you didn't get a chance to see it, I hope you'll go online and watch it. Uh, maybe it'll, it'll speak to you as well. Now, we're going to move, we're going to shift, it's Lent, and so we're going to move into the seven churches that are described in Revelation. And so that Jesus is telling John, who's on the Isle of Patmos, what he wants him to say, and we see that in, in this book that's letters to all these different churches. You follow me? And so today we're going to look at the first one. So today I want to talk to you about your first love. Yeah, that's what I want to talk to you about. I know, he's impressive. What a specimen. Yeah. Do you know who that is? No, it's not Tom Selleck. I know. I know what you're thinking. No, uh, that's me. It was just 50 years ago. I really haven't changed that much. Can you believe it? I mean, I look the same as I did. And so um, this is the guy who Laura Scherer fell in love with. And, and it's easy to see why, isn't it? What's not to love, Right. Uh, my buddy there, his dad owned the, the car dealership. We had to do this for the yearbook. He begged me to come out there, be in the picture, and he made me get up front there, and we made our picture. And, and we've had a lot of people contact us since then and wanting us to give them autographs. It's just been that kind of a thing. Well, that's not the kind of first love we're going to talk about today. You, you can take that picture down now. Although I'm sure it will be difficult to get that picture out of your mind, <laughs> that image. But, but I would encourage you to do that before you eat anything later on today. So we're going to talk about the first love mentioned in the book of Revelation as we begin this new series. Have you ever had a defining moment? It was a moment in your life where everything changed. You'd never be the same person again because you've grown and you're different and you're going to see life from a different perspective. I had one of those experiences when I was in college. I came home one weekend and got word that Pam Mahar, a childhood friend of mine, had died in a car wreck. 
She was leaving the college. She was driving to the lake. She came around a curve. There was some loose gravel in the road, and her car lost control, and she was killed instantly. We had grown up together, but it had been a while since we had seen one another that much. Her mother called my mother and asked if I would be the head pallbearer for her funeral. She said that Pam had always admired my faith. And let me just tell you, I had no idea. You never know who's watching you. You never know what kind of witness you are and what kind of an example you've been. I remember my mind flashback to several weeks before her death. I had stopped by McDonald's on Sunday afternoon. I was going to head back to the college. I think I was getting a shake or a Coke or something. And I went in and I ran into Pam there. And although we hadn't talked that much in years, it was just a divine appointment. We sat on the hood of my car and we just talked. She was unusually receptive and she was asking me questions about Christianity. She had been hanging out with the party crowd, but she knew that my faith was sincere. So right there in the McDonald's parking lot on Sunday afternoon, I witnessed to her. It was not forced, it was not uncomfortable, and it was not awkward. She was in no hurry to leave, and neither was I. And I believe that God gave us that time together. And I don't know if she made a commitment to Christ, but I do know that I explained to her why she needed to and how to do that. And I want to believe that she made a commitment before she died. I was so sad at her funeral, but I, I was concerned because of her friends. And I, I wanted to tell them about the conversation that we had had at McDonald's just a few weeks earlier. I wanted to tell them uh, about their faith before it was too late, and, but I didn't really know them well. I didn't have a relationship with them, so I just tried to be a friend to them while we were going through this difficult time together with the hope that maybe someday I would get to witness to them like I did Pam, and I still pray for that opportunity. This was a life-changing experience for me. I grew up a little bit more that day because I realized that there are no guarantees in life. Even young people can die unexpectedly. And life is precious, and it can't be taken for granted. And that's why this sermon is about that today. Jesus wants all of us to know that he expects to be our first love. In 1986, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, a recipient, said these words during an acceptance speech. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of success is not failure, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. Because indifference is living a life that's uncommitted to any one thing. To be indifferent robs us of the joy of our Christian faith. We begin to sense a dullness and an apathy toward God that wasn't there before. It's difficult to stay connected to God under those situations, and we begin to drift. And Jesus loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. And he wants to draw us close to him. 
In Revelation 2, Jesus is delivering this message through John, who's writing it, to churches throughout Asia. And these churches are a lot like churches today. So these messages are just as appropriate for us today here at Woodlawn. John has been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. The emperor has put him there because he's tired of hearing him preach all the time. So he says, get this guy out of here. We can't shut him up. Let's just get rid of him. And so he puts him on the Isle of Patmos. And now here are the seven churches that he's writing to, and he's traveling to visit them. You know, he has, and he will again. And so he starts in Ephesus, and he works his way up, and he comes back around to the last church in Laodicea. And so that's what we're going to be talking about during these seven weeks together. And Jesus is saying there's one thing that can be first place, and that's me, he says. I've got to be your first love. So how do we keep first things first? Well, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to listen to Jesus. We've got to listen. It says this, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold, golden lampstands, says this. Jesus is giving this revelation to John. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. <clears throat> John is saying if we want to be prosperous, then we've got to hear the words of Jesus that he's speaking to us. We live in a world with distractions, more distractions, I think, than we ever could possibly have. And is this a time in your life where you really just kind of tune everything out and you're able then to really listen to what Jesus is saying to you? The precondition for blessing in the Old Testament is that the people of Israel would listen to God. And the word listen is used multiple times in Scripture to make the point, but the problem is they didn't listen. And Jeremiah, it says this, Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. When we stop listening, it allows sin to come into our lives. We can't just listen selectively. We've got to be purposeful in listening to God. My father-in-law was a railroad engineer, and so he lost some hearing, and he had to wear hearing aids. And so there was a joke in the family that it really didn't matter if he had his hearing aids on or off. He heard the things he really wanted to hear. For example, when I was trying to date his daughter, he had trouble hearing me when I would tell him I wanted to take her out. And then when he finally did say something to me, all he said for the longest was, no. I mean, after we got married, he used to introduce me as Miss Dorothy's son-in-law. Does that tell you where I stood? If I'd had to deal with him and the dog, thank God the dog had died by then, I never would have gotten a date with Laurel. But also I learned in the early years of marriage that, that Laura needed to be direct with me. She needed to tell me what she wanted to tell me. She couldn't just drop hints and hope that I would catch on because I was just going to miss it completely. It was sometime after our honeymoon. I don't even remember how long it was, but it was down the road quite a bit. And she said one day, you know, I really wanted to go to Gatlinburg for our honeymoon. And I said, if I hurry, 
There's no way I'm going to get you there on time now because that's come and gone. So I said, what you need to do is you need to be very direct with me and you need to tell me exactly what you want me to know. And boy, has she learned that lesson. <laughs> she tells me now, and I just say, yes, ma'am, whatever you say, and we move forward from there. Now, the same is true with Jesus. We need to learn how to listen to him because you know why? We listen to the ones we love, don't we? And if we keep God as our first love, then we've got to listen to him. In Matthew 17, 5, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God looks at Jesus just revealed in glory, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then he turns to the disciples who are there with him, and he says, listen to him, very specifically. And what does he say to them? How, how do we listen to Jesus? Well, we can do that through quiet solitude. How difficult is it for you to be quiet? How difficult is it for you to turn off your phone? How difficult is it for you to put your phone down out of your hand, to leave it alone, to turn it off, to let it go? How hard is it you for, for you to just shut out the world and all the stuff that's going on all around us all the time and have quiet solitude and reflection? No noise, no distractions, no multitasking. Amen? You don't want to hear that, do you? Yeah. Though we can also do that through wise counselors and friends. Another person who loves us can speak the truth in love to us and give us wise counsel, but we have to listen. We can do it through a message that you hear. Something has been communicated to you that you got loud and clear. God is speaking to you through his word, and you've listened. We can do it through steps of obedience to hear the still, small voice of God when he says, you need to contact so-and-so. You need to send them a text. You need to send them an email. You need to call them on the phone. You need to go by and stop by there and just say, hey, you need to look for them today when you get to church. There's just something. We don't know what it is, but it's just God giving us that impetus. We don't even know why but he just wants us to respond, and so we listen. A second thing we need to do is don't hide behind a busy Christian life. Now, he's talking to the church at Ephesus, okay? The church at Ephesus did a lot of things right, and we're going to talk about the things that it did right in just a few minutes. But we are going to talk about the, the area where it needed to grow, and, and the church at Ephesus was a busy busy place. You know, I can't help but compare that church in many ways to Woodlawn. We're a busy place. And you know, it's good to do God's will. And it's good to be about his business. And it's good to fulfill all that he wants to accomplish. But you know, if we don't take care of ourselves, we won't be able to do that. And I got to tell you, sometimes I feel really, really like I'm really busy. And I think the staff does. And I think maybe you do, too. We've gone through a lot of stuff. 
We've been the command center for the hurricane. We've, we've tried to work and negotiate with the Methodist Church for two and a half years. We've gone through COVID and all the adjustments we had to make to do everything online to make it work. And we've had other personal things going on in our lives and other things happening. And it just seems like, you know, staff members leave and we're looking for staff members. And it just seems like that we're just really, really going fast. So what do we do in that situation? A friend of mine said this, we are simultaneously overcommitted and undercommitted because we're committed to so many things that we're not completely committed to anything. Notice what the church at Ephesus did. I know your deeds and your toil, your perseverance, and you cannot endure evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles. They are not, and you have found them to be false. He says, you persevered. He said, you've done that right. And you have endured, and you've done that right too. And you have not grown weary in accomplishing my goals. The church at Ephesus was a powerful church. For 30 years, it was a model for evangelism. And those people were so on fire for God that they were constantly one-on-one. -on -one, they were telling other people about Jesus. Let me tell you what he did for me. And they were sharing their faith. And they just wanted to see everybody else get saved. For 30 years, they did that. But you know what happens? After about 30 years, there's a generation that passes stuff off to the next generation. And if we don't do that well, then what's going to happen in the future have we lost our first love? When we love Christ, we can't help but share the good news with others. Something wonderful has happened to us, and we want everyone to be saved. Chuck Swindoll said this, Busyness rapes relationships. It substitutes shallow frenzy for deeper friendships. It feeds the ego but it starves the inner person. It fills the calendar, but it fractures the family. It cultivates a program, but it plows under the priorities. Jesus knew our tendency to th take things and then put them into a formula. Well, this is the way we've always done it, so we'll just do it this way. And then the formula becomes a ritual. And if we're not careful, we just start going through the motions all the time, and that's all we're doing. And so we must remember our first love. It has to start there, which leads us to our third point. Acknowledge your first love is Jesus Christ. It says, but I have this against you. You have lost or left your first love. Jesus is saying they've neglected their first love. He first tells them all the things they're doing right, but he says, now there's this one area where you need to go back and you really need to look at your life and you really need to turn things around. This is something that can change for the better, but you got to get real. And the word neglect there literally means to leave behind, to depart from something or someone. Your first love that's supposed to be the most important thing to you. Look what's happened. You have neglected it. You didn't intend to, but that's just what happened. How? The decisions we make every single day either reinforce or they erode our love for Christ. C.S. Lewis said, 
Every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. You fall in love with God, you're just going to be healthier spiritually. And the, and the more you love him, the healthier you're going to become. The church at Ephesus just became too busy. They were doing everything except the most important thing. Think about it. 30 years had gone by, just enough time to pass the baton. If we don't pass the right baton with the right values and the right priorities, then the church is sunk. That's what Jesus was saying. Get it restored now before it's too late. Paul says in Philippians, more than that, I count all these things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And the word knowing there literally means ultimate knowledge, intimate knowledge that we can only learn through time and experience with the Lord. I believe the closest parallel to this is something that could happen in neglecting our first love if we're married. A man says, I no longer love my wife. The counselor says, did you fall in love with your wife the first time you saw her? The man says, no, it took some time for us to fall in love. The counselor says, so your love for your wife grew over a period of time. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't just one moment, but it was over time. It was over a period of time as you neglected that relationship with your wife that you grew out of love with your wife. And the way to get back in love with your wife is the same way you did it the first time, to spend time with her. The same is true for our relationship with the Lord. Our first love has to be Jesus. So we have to create time. We have to create places. We have to create experiences with him to allow him to work in our lives. You aren't instantly a mature Christian at the moment you accept Christ. It takes time. So the fourth thing we see is take the steps to return to your first love for Christ. Remember what it's like when you were in love with Christ. Remember when nothing else mattered but him. How long ago was that for you? How long ago was it that you fell in love with Christ? You used to spend time together, but now you've just become so busy. Hebrews says this, Pay attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away from it. Drifting is caused from doing nothing. You ever go out on a boat and you're just kind of drifting into the trees there, you know, and, and into the shore? You know, sometimes you have to take action and do something so that you just don't drift. Neglect means We've replaced something. How do we return to our first love? Well, he tells us to repent and return. Eight times in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus calls the church to repent. And the words that he was saying then are just as appropriate to us today. The word metanoia, the Greek word there, literally means to change one's mind, to have a heart change. From what? Well, often it's sin. Sin has gotten rooted in our lives, and we can't seem to get it out because our relationship with the Lord has grown stagnant. There are all kinds of different sins, but Jesus is saying, repent from them, give them up. How do we do that? 
Well, there are two different words, Greek words for repentance, okay? One means to feel sorry and have remorse. But the other one, the second one, means to actually change, to actually implement change in your life, in your will and your heart and your reactions. One is a 90-degree turn. One is a 180-degree turn. Remorse only sees the bitter end of sin. Repentance breaks us free from it. Acts says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's how we get that refreshing from being with God. You may wonder why there's no first love in your life. It's because sin has robbed you of it, and now you're just going through the motions. I wish you'd go home this afternoon and read Psalm 38. It's written by David, and he wanted to truly repent, and he pours his heart out to God, and it's something that we can do as well. And then I want to share with you four steps of repentance. Number one is to see your sin for what it really is. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to avoid it. Don't try to hide it from God. He already knows. Just acknowledge it and say, yeah, that's me. Please forgive me. And then the second thing is to feel the weight of your sin. Think about how that sin makes Jesus feel after what he has done for us. How does God feel about his children acting that way, doing those things, being involved in things we shouldn't? And then third, we need to confess our sins to Christ and others. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from our sins. And James 5, 16 says we need to confess our sins one to another. And then the fourth thing is abandon it. It means to literally you decide to make daily changes and you have a choice to do that. So we see it, we feel it, we confess it, and then we abandon it. And then Jesus says, not only to remember, not only to repent, but he says, repeat what you did that kept you from falling. Go back to your first love. Go back and do the things you did when you first started. They brought in a group of older people in their 70s and 80s to speak at the seminary. The seminary students were there. And they asked these older people about their wisdom, the men and women. And they said, what is it? What are the secrets that you have learned to keep you in the right relationship with God all these years? And they all said the same thing. Never stop doing the basics. Stick with them. Go back to the Word of God. Spend time in prayer. Spend time with other people in fellowship. Now, notice he says this as he's concluding now. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Do you know who the Nicolaitans are? That's not just a, 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 a thing that you see on TV, an app, or a show that you watch on television. The Nicolaitans were people who mixed their Christian faith with immoral activities and prostitution in the temple. Now today you might say it like this. 
People today want to mix Christianity and culture. And they are diametrically opposed. And you can't have it both ways. You got to pick. You got to choose. And the culture is screaming for an answer, but they don't know what it is. And the Christians have got it. And we need to love those folks and we need to share. And we need to try to pray for them and, and help them any way we get a chance to do that. Listen, Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear inclusive or tolerant or accepting. He ate with them to call them to a changed and fruitful life to die to self and to live for him. Jesus' call to us is a call for transformation of life, not affirmation of identity. And the devil has got people wrapped up in identifying stuff that they were never meant to identify. And it's just the opposite of what God wants. It's a distraction to keep people from the truth. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Eternal paradise awaits those who love Jesus. Eternity became really important to me when I thought about Pam Mahar. The finality of her death at such a young age made me thankful for the opportunity that I had to witness to her with the hope that maybe she made a decision for Christ before she died. But what about us? We've got time today. What are you going to do differently in your life because God is speaking to you today. Have you become too busy? What would you have God do to change your life so that you might return to your first love? Repentance leads to change. There are three things that we have for takeaways today that we can take with us. Number one, we need to ask the question, where are we really? Just take an inventory during this Lenten season and saying, how am I doing in my relationship to God? What's going on with me? And then secondly, what needs to change? What, what do I need to give to God? What do I need to ask Him to help with? What, what do I need to see change in my life? So I'm, I'm going back to my first love. I'm back where I was before. And then what are we going to do to keep our relationship fresh with Christ? You know, there is no substitute for the time that we give him. You can't just manufacture that and make it happen on the run. It's not something that you can just do real quickly. It takes time, and it takes a process, and you grow and mature in your faith over a period. It's not just instantly. And so we, we have to return. We have to just shut out everything, and we have to say, Lord, we've already admitted that we're a mess. Now we want to do something about it with your help. And so we ask you to help us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you teach us in your word. And you teach us 
to repent and to return to our first love. He teaches how important it is to have a relationship with you. He teaches that there are a lot of distractions in the world. There always have been. And if we're not careful, we'll let them become the priority in our lives. And we'll just do busy things all the time, but we won't be accomplishing anything. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be very, very specific, uh, very much intentional about listening to you and only doing what you call us to do. Lord, help us to just drown out the voices. Help us just to get away from the world. Help us to turn off all the stuff on social media that just constantly is trying to get our attention. Help us to sit and soak and be in your presence and be just filled with your Holy Spirit so that we might be who you wanted us to be from the beginning. We might be yours and we might be used by you to accomplish your will and your purposes because, Lord, we know that there is a world out there that's crying, screaming for help, and they're looking in a lot of the wrong places. And we pray, Lord, that we might help point the way, that we might show them, not because we're arrogant, but because we love one another. And we want to do what you've called us to do. And we want to do it in your name and for your glory. And so we thank you for that privilege, Lord. And we pray during this season, during this time of Lent, that we might really look at things and see them clearly and allow you to address them. In your son's name we pray. And all God's children said.